Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. This time, Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. Musk, the billionaire free speech enthusiast. But does that mean free speech for racists, misogynists and those who incite hatred towards others? And if so, what can legislators on both sides of the Atlantic and indeed Europe do about it? What should we, as Twitter users, be doing about it? We'll be joined shortly by Imran Ahmed, the founder of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate in Washington, D.C., and Peter Jukes, the executive editor of the Byline Times. And we'd love to hear from you as well. If you're listening live via Byline Radio and you've got something sensible to contribute or a question to ask, there is a little purple microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. Just tap that to request access. And as we go along, we'll invite you to join our conversation. Before we get cracking, though, just a reminder that the Byline Festival is back and it takes place this coming bank holiday weekend. It's a wonderful mix of inquisitive journalism, free speech, comedy and music. There's a top cast list as well. Just listen to this. Names like Rio Ferdinand, Joanna Scanlon, Sanjeev Buskar, Jonathan Pye, Asif Kapadia, Don Letts, Carol Cadwallader, Bonnie Greer, Ian Lucas, Musa Akwanga, Anthony Barnett, Hadeep Matharu, Dawn Butler MP, Lord Alf Dobbs, Peter York, Peter Tatchell, and the Citizens of the World Refugee Choir. It's going to be a wonderful weekend, and it all takes place at Ackland Village Market in Portobello Road, North Kensington, in London. And if you can't make it down to London for the weekend, you'll also be able to watch it, get a virtual ticket via Byline TV. But if you want to know more, check out the website, bylinefestival.com. That's bylinefestival.com. So let's welcome our guest now. Hello to Peter Dukes, who is the uh, executive editor of the Byline Times. Hello to you, Peter. You're right. All right, Adrian, late night call for you, but they're your amazing man. Always finger on the pulse, whatever time. I'm invigorated by a wonderful episode of The Derry Girls, its final series, and it is absolutely brilliant. I've just been watching. You, can I just, just say the love I have for you, Adrian, means I sacrificed watching this second episode of the sixth series of Better Call Saul for you. And that's where oh, love showed itself. I didn't realise you were a, such a Better Call Saul fan. I, I love it as well <laughs> and actually think it's better than Breaking Bad. Which I, I do. No dead bodies. Well, there are now, but it's it has all the jeopardy of Breaking Bad with no dead bodies. So I think that's genius. <laughs> and there's something a little bit only fools and horses, something a little bit Del Boy about Jimmy yes. McGill as well. I think it's wonderful. Anyway, we may discuss that on a future occasion, but let's welcome <laughs> we should. let's welcome all the way from Washington, D.C., Imran Ahmed, as I say, founder of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. How are you there, Imran? You all right? Good evening. I'm very well, thanks. That's great. Don't worry. We won't detain you too much with Teletalk, Imran. Let's get straight into this issue of the Twitter takeover by Elon Musk. What do you make of it? Well, in one respect, not much has changed. You've got one rich white billionaire um, bloke taking over from another rich white billionaire bloke. And, you know, plus the change, etc. I think the real challenge, though, is that Clearly, Elon Musk has said that he's a free speech advocate. That's one of those terms that you hear a lot of people claim they are, but actually can be kind of meaningless. He's a guy who's very thin-skinned. He's very litigious. He likes to sue for defamation. He's a man who gets very upset about the press about him, doesn't like what's said about him. And the question is, in whose interest will he administer 
his platform? Will he, is this about giving him another platform for self-aggrandizement and for those who you know back him, or is this about creating a genuinely open space for discourse? Because a genuinely open space for discourse has to recognise the fact that, for example, abuse by people towards say women. Um, we did a report recently showing that. One one in 15 DMs on Instagram received by women are misogynist abuse of some kind. Now, that makes that environment a toxic environment for women to engage. So the free speech of an abuser can actually impinge on the free speech of a woman or a black person or a Muslim or a Jew. And so I think he's going to find himself actually being, you know, that this concept of free speech will be tested in practice and will finally understand what on earth it means that he actually means by that. A couple of years ago, Twitter did seem to strengthen its rules and people like Donald Trump were finally chased off the site. But quite a few people on what we would describe in Britain anyway as the far right ended up decamping to other platforms such as Parler and so on. Is there any suggestion that by taking over, that must taking over, that those people now will feel welcome back on Twitter? Well, I mean, it's almost certain that, you know, that they will be probing the edges to see whether or not they're going to be allowed back into a platform that gives us a, gives them access to hundreds of millions of people. The truth is that deplatforming, for example, white supremacists to Parler, and I'm I'm really proud that the Centre for Country and Digital Hate has led in some of the accountability work, which is which forced those people off platforms. Um, that there is there is a serious question in my head. Will they be probing the edges? Will they be trying to get access to these big platforms that give them access to big audiences? And not just that, but also take advantage of the algorithmic amplification of hateful content. Because the way these platforms work is they amplify that which is most controversial, that's which is creating the most light and heat. And quite often that's hateful content, misinformation content, um, rather than you know, positive discourse or even informed informed discussion. Um, in fact, quite often that's a bit of a turn-off for these algorithms. So they're looking to, to, to get the most emotion out of people. Um, and so those people, you know, they're going to be wanting to go back on these platforms that give them advantage over uh, other folks. Uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, though, I, th- I think that they've got a real challenge there. I mean, he's put a lot of money into setting up his own platform. Um, the question is, will he even want to go back? Mm. Peter, let me bring you in, because we've spoken before and you've done a lot of work uh, around Facebook and the way in which that has been used to target voters to influence or attempt to influence the outcome of elections. Has Twitter, to your knowledge, been used in the same way? Twitter's very different. I mean, if you look at its valuation, what is he paying? $40 billion? Twitter's worth $500 billion. And Twitter sucks up all the advertising. I have not, I'd say Facebook sucks up all the advertising, which used to go to journalists. I can't really see that quite how Twitter monetizes itself. In my experience, Twitter is really a platform for politics and journalism. And I completely agree with everything Iman has saying, especially the targeting women, targeting women of color the sort of hate speech that was, you know, comes and goes. I've been in, if you ever go, if you want to experience what 
a stream of invective. Happened to me once when Colin Brazier immersed me in a GB News stream, said something bad about me, and I had thousands of hateful comments. But ever just stray into Carol Cadwallader's Twitter stream uh, or other women journalists, and it is an incessant um, vortex of hatred, misogyny, and abuse. Now, it's clear to me, and this is what just I'm going to say something positive about what Elon Musk has said he's going to do. I'm not sure he will do it. And I, I, with him, I'm why we're discussing which white billionaire owns, owns what we consider free speech. It's a platform. It's a commercial platform. It isn't what free speech guarantees you, which is the state guaranteeing you rights to access to the public space. It's not a public space. But he has promised two things. And I think they're interesting and worth debating. One is that he will rid uh, the platform of the bot networks. When we say bots, they're not all, all automated. They're, and we've discovered in the past, one person who can activate to tweet decks, uh, 40 or 50 accounts, another 40 or 50 accounts. And you have this illusion, an automated consensus, but it's one guy in a room activating hundreds of accounts. If you could do that, that might be good for public discourse. The other more tricky thing, which I do think is worth discussing, is verification. Now, I have seen many times what people call sock puppets and spam bots, people using multiple accounts, talking to themselves. I've seen it, you've seen it, we've all seen it, right? And one way of getting over that is that each individual has to authenticate their account to some other metric, a bank account or whatever. Now, I completely understand the problems of anonymity. If you're Syrian distant, that you do not want your name known because Assad's people might come and get you. But I do think there's a difference between verification and anonymity. You can there's there's ways of maintaining your anonymity but still being verified. And I think a lot of the false amplification of right wing um, right wing discourse which ha has happened in the last 10 years partly because there's advertising involved a lot of complicated bot farms and false accounts would be solved by those two things so though I do agree you know it's I, I always look at Twitter like sayonara you know I love it it's the best investigative tool following Ukraine I'm three days ahead of the New York Times by going to the right accounts but I know it's not my space. It's not a park. It's owned by a commerce. But maybe Elon Musk, by those two principles, might be able to help. Mm. This is the difficult thing, slightly, Imran, isn't it? I mean, here we are broadcasting via Twitter Spaces, which is a, a wonderful piece of technology. It's not the only platform, but it's a platform that allows us to connect with listeners all around the world, to host phone-ins like this. And I know we've got a, a couple of people who want to chat with us who we'll uh, engage with a little bit later on. And it is the home of many interesting debates and it leads people down very interesting rabbit holes of discussion and debate as well as the many undeniably negative and vile things that you can find on it this is a very example of a curated space in which you invited guests in which you will field questions in which you try and create a debate and discussion that's valuable to listeners it's literally the antithesis of what twitter's main experience is like which is a stream of, you know, hot takes from people that don't have particularly hot brains. And, you know, one of the challenges I think that Peter's identified about anonymity and bots 
I mean, sure, maybe he's the engineer who can find the answer to the bot problem of working out which distributed IP networks are being used to um, to send automated messaging. It's a, it's an engineering challenge. Actually, one of the world's most world's greatest engineers, possibly one of history's greatest engineers, a guy who literally launched a rocket and landed it on a barge, and that's what Elon Musk has done. So let's give him some credit for what he is. He is a off-the-charts engineering genius. Maybe he can find the engineering, he can solve the engineering challenge of bots. I suspect he's talking about bots because he's trying to find something popular, having basically said that he's going to allow a load of people to be as abusive as possible on this platform because he believes in free speech, and realizing that people don't actually like that, and it will it will render his platform a commercial wasteland, is the truth. Because frankly, which advertiser wants to have their advert appear next to a tweet saying, you insert some really horrendous misogynist or racist term and so i think that 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 he's focusing in on two things the bots and verification the thing is with verification you can tell that he's just jumped on it and he's not really thought about it because in fact the question of verification is already being addressed by legislators around the world take for example the online safety bill in the united kingdom now um the uk government is legislating at the moment for transparency and accountability of social media platforms and one of the provisions that they added quite late in is a verification system so you will all users will be given the option to verify and all verified users will be given the option to only interact with verified users now the, the British government is saying any platform that wants to operate in the UK has to have some sort of verification scheme. So it would essentially create a two-track social media experience. One would be where you interact with people that you know to be real and so therefore feel some sense of accountability and therefore might be less likely to indulge in abuse, for example. And there will be another unfiltered um, social media experience where, for example, dissidents and others could tweet, but also where you'll find huge amounts of trolls. But those trolls will find their voices less listened to because they're not able to interact with verified users because no one wants to listen to a bunch of 13-year-olds pretending that they're grown-ups and, you know, using the N-word. Mm. Uh, you talk about, you know, which advertisers would want to have their products associated with hate speech, but uh, perhaps you're uh, kind of using normal commercial measures to try and uh, assess this. But of course, Musk doesn't need the money, does he? He doesn't, in that sense, need Twitter to be commercially successful. He simply needs it to be a, vi- a viable platform. He's borrowed a ton of money against, and let's not forget, it's not just his own money. He's also had, you know, some of the world's biggest investment banks and others involved in this too. This is a commercial takeover. He's bought a commercial platform with no experience of having run one. And he has made, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I've, I've worked in parliament. I've worked, I live in the US now. I, I do a lot of work with, um, captains of industry and you know you can often find that the hubris that comes with being very clever in one field can often lead to failure in another um i i, I don't know if that's going to be true about him and in one respect i i hope that he manages to make it commercially viable but twitter is basically a, it's one of the sort of it's the laggard amongst the social media companies it has 210 million users versus 2.5 billion for facebook it's never really achieved the scale nor is it nor is it fully ma- managed to commercialize itself um it is possible that he will turn it into something that is genuinely you know something you have to have on your phone but at the moment it's not 
He has described himself, Peter, in the past as a free speech absolutist. And uh, that's the kind of language, I think, which tends to chime more with users in the United States, perhaps, than in the United Kingdom. I think there's a kind of cultural difference, one side of the Atlantic compared to the other. Yeah, I mean, actually, because in America, they have very strong First Amendment free speech protections. People always forget that that also includes the right to assembly and other freedoms of, uh, you know, of the individual to meet with others. But we can't look back at the history of the last 12 years since Citizens United when the Supreme Court ruled that corporations were individuals and had rights to free speech and therefore unleashed billions of money, what we call dark money, into politics without seeing free speech has generally been used as a wedge by the right. I mean, back in you know the days of the French Revolution, back in the days of censorship of the 19th century, early 20th century, Orwell, free speech was generally seen as a liberal or left-wing thing that you know, un- un- unrepresented people could say things about the government could you know the, the, remember that you know until 1968 there was a censor for what you could put on stage until Calcutta came along and there was nudity it was basically seen as a a a, a force of free speech was something which the left or more people the populist left needed to exercise now and there was too many tweets of Elon Musk to demonstrate this he means it as an anti-woke thing what he means is that I want the right to say, well, as we know famously in the court case, call somebody a paedophile without it becoming too onerous for me. It's the privilege wanting the right to insult other people. Free speech is never free. And let's be really clear about this. And it's one of those sort of um, shibboleths, which is free speech, right to free speech. No, you have no right to libel somebody in the US or here. You have no right to conspire to commit a crime. You have no free speech right to defraud somebody. And in some countries like the UK for racial incitement. So it's become a kind of a bit like the, you know, liberty in the South became liberty for, you know, around states' rights, which was a cover slightly for, you know, allowing repressive legislation over voting that free speech is one of the rights in the article of human rights. I think it's the right to free expression is number 10. Way before that is right to a fair fair trial and not to be contempt. So it's just a very simplistic means which billionaires seem to like and the right seems to like. But he still, as Imran says, may have the chutzpah and, you know, and want to make it work on Twitter. Mm. It's quite an interesting and difficult legislative path that he faces as well, because Imran's touched on the legislation in the United States, here in the UK, there's a bill going through Parliament, and in the Europe as well, there will be different legislation governing what can and can't be said online. So it's not like the pioneer days of social media when although now there may well be all sorts available to view should you seek it out on social media in the early days of social media it was it was just there and now things have to be 
hidden a little bit. They are m- may well be very fallibly moderated, but they are moderated to an extent. So I, I think we're just operating perhaps in a different time as well. You know, that might just be a, a, a romanticism, a nostalgic view back from Musk for a social media world that existed all of 10 years ago. Can I hand, I'm going to hand over to Imran on this because he made a very, you know, on Byline TV, he made a very good point. Yes, it is that that time, that that sort of early tech time where tech was just a platform. It was an enabler of a political new world. And as Imran has brilliantly said to us before, it, they are no longer a platform. Twitter is a publisher. It monetizes it and it has responsibilities for what it publishes. You know, the, the, the early days of social media w- were only, what, a decade, a decade and a half ago. And in reality, the social media is, is, is the product of, the, of the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act 1996 in the United States, which basically said that no one can be held liable for the content held on content on your website that's posted by a third party and you also have a good samaritan responsibility to clean up that content so it's not too awful so there was an exchange made of rights it said you can't be held liable for what other people say but you have a duty to clean it up as much as possible the problem is that the duty was never enforced by any mechanism and so what that led to was this notion that you could accrue other people's content make tons of money out of it mark zuckerberg's worth a hundred billion dollars before the age of 40 and he did that by taking other people's data their insights their thoughts their words and then making money off the back of it and you have no legal liability for the con- for that for that content whatsoever. You know, there's a really famous um, uh, Andrew Bosworth, who's currently the chief technology officer for Meta. He once wrote a memo internally at, at, at Meta, which said at Facebook, which said, "The ugly truth is that we we grow." Maybe someone dies on our platform because they're bullied and they kill themselves. Maybe someone uh, dies in a terrorist attack um, that's planned on our platform. That's not our problem. We grow. And really, that is the logic that's underpinned social media for a long time. The problem is that in recent years, you've seen bad actors taking advantage of bad platforms, inability and unwillingness to moderate themselves. And so we've seen the threat landscape when it comes from social media grow rapidly, the colonization by bad actors using them for very nefarious purposes. I got into this game six years ago when my colleague Joe Cox MP was murdered in Parliament, um, murdered, well, in Batley and Spen in her in, in her. Um, constituency by someone who'd been radicalized by things like the great replacement theory and all sorts of conspiracist nonsense online since then the only thing that i've been convinced of is that social media platforms are not honest brokers and partners to 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 deal with the harms that they produce and in every other industry if you do good stuff but you also produce harms then you are essentially asked to bear some of the cost of those harms that's what regulation is it's about making sure you share in the costs of the negative externalities and the economics of your industry and until now these these companies have not i think it's time that that changes and the funny thing is that elon musk may be buying a platform when it's already thanks to legislation around the world going to be very difficult for him to actually implement what he wants which is to have a free-for-all in which 
in which abusers can exert power over victims very easily. Some really interesting views here. You're listening to Imran, who's joined us. Imran Ahmed, the founder of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, based in Washington, D.C., and Peter Dukes, the executive editor of the Byline Times. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and you're listening to Byline Radio. And if you're listening on catch-up to the Byline Times podcast, we are funded by ordinary subscribers to the Byline Times, which is a brilliant monthly newspaper edited by our colleague, Ardeep Matharu. And unlike many things that you will read and see. It does not have a proprietor behind it. It does not have a, a hedge fund behind it. It just has ordinary people who buy the Byline Times. And in doing so, through their subscriptions, through their memberships, they not only get that brilliant monthly paper, they also support Byline Radio, Byline Times Podcast, Byline TV, and our wonderful news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. I know a lot of people are keen to join in our conversation, Imran and Peter, so let's see a first from Luke, who wants to join us. Hello, Luke. Welcome to Byline Radio. Hi there. Thank you. Um, it's been really interesting to to hear Imran and Peter speak. Um, and the point they make about this being a difficult time at which to try and maximise the commercial value of Twitter, I think is an excellent one um, in light of the, the online safety bill, the digital markets act, et cetera. Um, and it's left me thinking, what does Twitter add to Musk's business empire that perhaps we're not thinking about at the moment. Um, and I've seen some interesting uh, sort of musings about open AI, um, GPT-3, these big language models, which require very, very large data sets in order to deliver kind of insights on and uh, behavioral insights on, on human language. And Twitter is obviously an enormous, novel, um, but very well architected data set of human speech. Um, and so, so I think that's an interesting avenue. And the next is like, what does it mean for Tesla? Um, Musk, like Musk is a business person who's not spent any money on marketing, but the primary commercial interaction through Twitter and other social media platforms is marketing. So it's kind of anathema to his business approach until now. And I, I just wonder how he's going to integrate the two. Mm, uh, good questions, Imran. One for you. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm ducking out of this debate. Go on. Which of those questions would you like me to go for first? Well, go on. Whichever, whichever you feel most able to respond to. I mean, I think the the impact on Tesla, I, I think, is the one that's most interesting to me right now because I mean, I actually do see Elon Musk as being one of the great, um, the great thinkers and doers of. Uh, my lifetime, I take an enormous amount of uh, inspiration from the, the way in which he has set a goal, has um, clinically, strategically set himself to achieving it, and it has credible steps that take him to that. And I think there's a real it, it, it's in in my ability to admire him and his the way that he manages his strategy and his people and his organisations. 
that I look at his takeover of Twitter and I wonder, well, the most important thing you set yourself as an organizational chief is to set yourself a goal. And he's all over the place right now. He says that he wants to get rid of bots. He wants to deal with verification. And verification is, you know, he wants to have only verified users only. How many people that currently use Twitter would be very happy to have their actual identities available to to, to people who are on there? Um, the, the question of free speech absolutism and you know, he's unable to answer basic questions which have been put to him on which racists would you allow back on your platform? <laughs> would, would you allow child sexual abusers on your platform? Would you allow, like, who is it that you want back on your platform? And do you think there are any red lines for your platform or should it be a free for all? And I think it's the lack of, it's, it, you know, it, it kind of it feels like a midlife crisis. It is bizarre to see someone that I consider to be incredibly smart make such a strategically incompetent decision. Uh, Peter, have you got any thoughts? Uh, Never underestimate the vanity of <laughs> middle-aged men. Um, so when you, I remember the moment when Rupert Murdoch joined Twitter. Uh, in 2013, it was. And he actually answered a question I posed him about the New York Times, which is uh, one of the amazing side effects of Twitter is you control somebody very rich and famous and they have to answer you. And, you know, that level of peer-to-peer interaction, you know, if Twitter does screw up, if Elon Musk does blow it up, we'll look for an alternative. But there is something about the fact that a multimillionaire feels unlistened to and unheard to. And I said this, felt exactly the same about Rupert Murdoch. He owned like 70% of Australian newspapers. He owned 60% of the British revenues, the British press and Sky TV at that time and Fox News and felt unheard. We have Piers Morgan launching last night. I've just watched the wonderfully, um, the day-to-day opening woke cancelled Piers Morgan. This is a man, multimillionaire, who is streamed across our television stations, is mainstreamed in most of the press, feeling unheard. And I do think Emran's right about that. There's something about no matter how many riches, how many billions you get, how many Learjets, how many, you know, shuttles you can launch that land on their own pads to the moon and play David Bowie and get a car in space, you still require the approbation and approval of your peers. And I fear that's what's playing out here. There is a great, somebody's, there's a tweet I tweeted last night about five years ago, uh, Elon Musk was complaining about Twitter and said, you should buy it. He said, how much is it? This is five years ago because he was complaining about somebody criticizing him. <laughs> so maybe it all comes down to the egos of vain white men. I think his intentions are pretty good, actually, in, in terms of what he would like to do. But uh, I have kind of reservations in for example, when we talk about free speech on the internet, I think um, we're immediately diving into algorithms. So, for example, I saw some tweets about, uh, well, if you're not happy about this uh, uh, platform, then go and use Instagram. And I mean, at the end of the day, free speech is uh, somebody can go on the uh, on the street and can 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 talk about something but in the end of the day twitter is really about the algorithms that uh, control uh, what they try to do there so i would have some reservations about what actually is meant by free speech there i have to say i do think a little bit that, that there's this idea of free speech i mean elon musk himself is an enormous donor 
you know, he's worth uh, he's worth over a hundred billion dollars himself. He gives enormous amounts of money to politicians to have influence. And the, I, I don't not automatically elide being able to use Twitter with being able to influence people or being heard by people. In fact, quite often, like I. At a very simple level, I tell my staff every day, just because you tweeted something does not mean that it's been listened to by the people that you want it to be listened to by. And I do remember giving a speech at Harvard to the, the politics department there where, where a bunch of students asked me, how many you know, followers do you need to be able to sort of get, you know, like, like how should we build up our social media profile? And I, I said to them, like, build up the quality of your opinions, not your social media profile, because people listen to you not because you've got 50,000 followers, but they listen to you because you've got something worth saying. Um, I, 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 I find all of this kind of wrong-headed and really, in a, in a sort of profound way, um, Musk's positions to be almost childlike in their one could say innocence, but I'd just say that they're just reductive and do not understand the power that he holds anyway, both as a rich, white, you know, straight cis man, um, but also as someone whose opinions lots of people have been interested in listening to because he is influential in his field. Yeah, I also think it's maybe looking at the uh, the mindset of Mr. Musk, I think it's interesting to understand his roadmap in terms of how he thinks uh, the future will um, will turn out for Twitter and his influence there. So obviously, he when I think of Elon Musk, I, I think about different parts of his interests. So for example, rockets, uh, we have electric cars, now we have Twitter. So what's the long-term goal here for for Twitter and Elon Musk is the interesting question to answer, I think. Okay. Uh, the Psych G, thank you very much indeed for joining in. I want to bring in uh, Omar Moore into the conversation. Hello, Omar. Welcome. Thank you very much, Adrian, and uh, uh, good uh, good evening to you and welcome to everybody. Thank you very much. Um, just want to say a couple things really quickly. One of the things that I am gravely concerned about, I think Peter and Imran have, and I think the Psych Gamer and others have expressed this, is uh, a point I think specifically Imran made about uh, which racists are going to be let back on the platform or reinstated the platform. Uh, it's clear to me that, uh, that Elon Musk is an, is a libertarian, number one. He has a massive ego, um, a, a narcissist in, in, in all measures as far as I'm concerned. And he has a company, Tesla, that now has uh, been the subject of multiple class action, racial discrimination, and sexual harassment lawsuits here in California. And uh, I have a tremendous objection, I'm sure I'm not the only one, to any billionaire owning a platform of this kind of magnitude. And I, I want to just say this to just buttress the point I'm making. Uh, a few years ago, the former Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, uh, wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald, and he talked about Rupert Murdoch being a cancer on democracy. And I, I don't think he's wrong about that at all. Rupert Murdoch has tarnished uh, many a mind with the kinds of poisonous publications that he has brought up all over the world. And I don't think that that would be any different here with Elon Musk. And when you consider that Twitter in its present form, and, and I think Site Gamer and someone else pointed to algorithms, Twitter in its present form, has these algorithms that are inherently built in as uh, racist, anti-black, 
anti-female, and a number of other things. I shudder to think what someone like Elon Musk could do with that platform. And when he says free speech, free speech, free speech for whom? I, and I think Peter hit it on right on the head when he said, for free speech for the right wing. And there's not going to be any censorship at all. And there have to be consequences. With speech comes consequences. And free speech isn't free. I think Peter or Imran mentioned that. So I'm, my whole point here is that I am very concerned about this. And I know I'm not the only one. We've had politicians here in the United States express the same view. There needs to be some kind of regulation here. And there needs to be responsibility. Billionaires owning these platforms, uh, privatization of Twitter, uh, I am very concerned about this. And I appreciate, uh, Adrian, once again, you holding this forum tonight. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Omar, thanks very much indeed. Uh, very eloquently expressed. Thank you so much. Uh, Kathy has joined us on Byline Radio as well. Hello, Kathy. Hi, all. Um, yeah, excellent discussion. Um, everybody's making extremely valid points. And like, so um, one of the things that struck me, I don't know if everybody's, if anybody remembers the documentary i think it was on bbc one about putin um recently where the kind of like psychodynamics of putin and how he you know his formative years how he grew up how he got into power and how he's progressed since i'm getting that kind of vibe off musk at the moment to be honest with you um there was a psychologist that was talking about um you know the the, the ego of putin and um how he's um become sort of like existential, you know, it, it, it's kind of, um, it gets worse as it goes on, you know, the more he thinks he can do and get away with, he thinks he's, un, you know, untouchable until you kind of like lose a little bit at the end. So that coupled with the fact that he's a, Musk is a, you know, libertarian, you know, he <laughs> spends a lot of money sort of like um, pushing forward right-wing thinking. His, his tweets tonight are really concerning. Um, and I agree that there is something very juvenile about it all, you know, the laugh, cry emoji, billionaire kind of thing. Imran, I was going to say, you know, that the naivety that you uh, that you allude to there is is maybe the the thing that makes Musk capable of seeing things that other people can't see. You know, that may account for his his visionary nature in a way. You know, the kind of childishness. I'm not sure if people listen to him because he's childish. I, I, I think he has a genuine audience, but he just seems profoundly ignorant of the dynamics by which speech is speech can can reinforce, exacerbate power differentials between people. And you know, for example, the way we did a, a report recently with five prominent women. Um, uh, Basically, they gave us access to their DMs and we downloaded them all on Instagram and we went through and we passed what proportion were hateful, about 1 in 15. We reported those hateful comments, everything from, uh, you know, graphic sexual imagery to um, one word misogynist abuse to death threats and threats of harm. And nine out of 10 times, no action was taken. We've got a report coming out in two days time on uh on islamophobia and the way that that presents on social media the way in which the systematic 
spreading of anti-Muslim misinformation and hate. And I mean, I, you know, I, I, I put those two things together because it takes a lot of misinformation to make someone hate someone for who they worship, what, you know, who they love, what color their skin is. It takes a lot of bullshit to turn someone from an innocent child into a blabbering hate actor. And um, I, I, I just think that, that he is, is profoundly ignorant of the power dynamics. Now, I'm afraid as an adult, you don't get to be childlike. You know, th there is often a lot of darkness that comes with that, that label. And given the way that he has used his existing power, one of the, I mean, probably the most powerful, one of the two or three most powerful people on earth, given his wealth, you know, in the past, in a way, in in a way in which shows hostility, disregard, dislike of 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 being challenged, um, in which he's accused people of being paedophiles just because he doesn't like them, in which he uses his enormous wealth to bully other companies and buy them. Uh, and with Twitter to make a billion dollars on the stock price by basically lying to the SEC, the Securities uh, Commission in the US. You know, I'm not sure that he's a fit and proper person to be looking after free speech for our country. I think our legislators are. I think our democratically elected legislators are. And I do think that this is the ultimate challenge to them. Like, do they really want to hand over free speech to a dilettante, um, engineer billionaire or are they going to say it's about time that we did our jobs and actually regulated social media mm. uh, tied up with that though partly at least anyway is the question of political donations isn't it political donations are, are in the u.s in particular are deeply problematic i <laughs> now that i live here i I, I, I wistfully think about the days in which election campaigns were run, you know, for 70,000 quid per, per, per constituency as they are in the UK, which, you know, leads to a significantly lower level of corruption of the legislative process as you have in the US where donations are considered speech as a result of a profoundly wrong-headed uh, Supreme Court decision and corporations and people are flooding money into Washington. Do you know, I mean, the, the irony is that, of course, these companies, social media companies, they flooded $120 million into the individual coffers of politicians in 2020. That it is the single biggest lobbying industry in the US now. It's bigger than Exxon and Philip Morris, Facebook and Google and, and Amazon and Google. Um, so, I, I, I think it's going to be a real challenge to get that legislation on the books. But that's exactly what I moved to the US to do. And, you know, we're achieving something there. We've got a conference on May the 19th of legislators from around the world to talk about what legislation is being brought forwards. Because we can't allow speech to be held hostage by to, to the whims of a guy like Elon Musk. Yeah, well, in, uh, I'm quoting here from a CNBC report. This is just for the year 2021. In that year alone, three of his companies combined, SpaceX and Tesla, spent more than $2 million in lobbying. So it, obviously we would hope that the democratic system would out. But, I mean, if Twitter, if Musk wants to lobby for Twitter, he's got a lot of ammunition, hasn't he? He's got a lot of money. Yes, and that means he has a lot of power and influence. Um, and he's, tr you know, he's seeking to extend that power and influence by taking control of free speech. I mean, he's essentially said, 
you know, I will control public discourse. I will be the man in charge and I will decide who wins and who loses. And believe me, if he carries on with his proposal, which is to allow abusers, racists, etc., back on his platform because he believes that that is free speech absolutism, he will have made a decision about who wins and who loses in public discourse. Because I won't go on, you know, I would never leave my house if I knew that every time I opened my front door, someone would shout a, a racial slur at me. I just think, crumbs, why would I actually leave this house? The same with a platform where I knew that the, the tax that was placed on me for even having a voice was to face a barrage of racist abuse. And so he's making a decision. He's picking a side if he goes down the route of free speech absolutism. The civil rights of minorities will not be protected. Their rights to free speech will be impinged on, and he will be empowering the worst among us. I'm just curious, actually, in terms of free speech and this promotion of free speech by Mr. Musk. Um, maybe he talks about free speech because he realizes that it's unregulatable, so that it can't be regulated. So, for example, if you look at other media giants like uh, so, uh, Facebook, Meta, for example, their WhatsApp has not been regulated, really. If you look at Instagram, if you look at platform itself, it's beyond regulation. How do you regulate it? If you look at Twitter, for example, okay, the content is differ, different, the, the structure is different. And there's talks about opening up the algorithms to open source. So the open source community to be able to contribute into maybe the development of the Twitter platform itself. But can we really regulate um, these platforms? Are we allowed or can it even happen? Can I just say something here? We have been at this pass before and it's hundred years ago when you had both, um, you know, the trust bus thing, Theodore Roosevelt, Standard Oil, you had monopolies in industry and had monopolies in the papers and you had the yellow press. And what happened was a mixture of legislation. But I'm taking great heart from what Omar and Imran say, and that's the consumer. Now, I've seen violence decline in my lifetime at 60 massively on the street. The amount, the things that people say to you on social media, and I'm speaking as a white straight guy, but you know, if you're a person of color or a woman, they are inordinately more, would incite massive fight. They incite trauma. And I've seen this happen to people, but you know, in ways that are not socially acceptable. So I do think there are two there are two routes here. One is, as Omar says and Imran says, externalities. If you're a shipping agent, if you're an oil manufacturer and you spill oil into a river, you're fine for that. If you create genocide in Myanmar, you should be fine for that. So there are regulatory mechanisms to do that. There's also consumer choice. So that we can, if this platform becomes too toxic there are opportunities to establish it elsewhere. I'm not talking of just a free market model. I'm talking a boycott. And we've seen the right boycott it go to Gessel, Parler, and these other, and it hasn't worked. But Elon must know that a lot of these trolls are reliant on people like Omar and Imran. They're the people they want to set. They are reactionaries. They're reacting to what they call wokeness, what we call civil rights. And their whole purchase is they feel their white identity is being marginalized in our more expanded idea of fairness and justice. Without us, 
they wouldn't want to be on the platform. So it's a very odd, the whole Trump phenomenon is a very odd reactionary moment of the fact that anti-racism, anti-sexism is actually the norm. Let's bring in Brenda, who's joined us on Byline Radio. Hello, Brenda. Welcome along. I'm listening to this with this. I'm going to come at this from a different angle. I'm 55. I'm from Northern Ireland. Um, and as a sideline, hope everybody enjoyed Dairy Girls tonight. Um, I love we, it. The last two episodes <laughs> have been brilliant, Brenda. I love Dairy Girls anyway, but the last two episodes have been the toppermost of the poppermost. They've been great, I have to say. Yeah. Tonight, not so hot, but we'll, we'll move on from that. So, yeah, as I said, I'm 55. I'm from Northern Ireland. I'm sure Peter's very much aware of the media campaign in the 70s and 80s. People talk about free speech. A lot of people don't understand that pre-1970, people here did not have the right to vote. Um, it, that was the reason for the civil rights period. Then there was um, the Civil Rights March, which accumulated into Bloody Sunday, where civil rights marchers were shot dead and murdered by the British Army. And it took 50 years for those people to be proved innocent. So when it comes to free speech, media manipulation and the brainwashing of the masses, I come at it from a slightly different angle. I believe that um, Musk is obviously, in my idea, one of the heads of the pathocracy the, the society that's being built by the psychopaths and the sociopaths and their flying monkeys, which we're experiencing at the moment. But I've seen this in real time. Um, I do believe that the regulation is required, but who's going to regulate it? You know, I, I watched I watched the British press demonize people here for generations and innocent people were called murderers and terrorists, which actually wasn't the case. So we do have to sit down and say to ourselves, who exactly is going to regulate it? Who's in power? Because my experience of general media power has never been that sweet, people. No, well, indeed, and in fairness, uh, on Byline Times, Peter, I think we've done much to expose the the way in which Murdoch in particular, but the right-wing press uh, generally in the UK does speak for a particular group of people and protect the interests of a particular group of people. Uh, that's the media, and, of course, they do back certain politicians. But I suppose, ultimately, we've, we've kind of got to believe in and, and work towards a fairer democracy, haven't we? There's got to be a level of, of trust and faith that we can make the system work for us. I think Brenda has a great point. I mean, if you look back at the coverage of Bloody Sunday of the troubles or, you know, the long, you know, whatever the euphemisms we used about that. I had a very slanted view in the 70s until I found other sources. Um, you can look at the coverage of Hillsborough or Grieve. The idea that was better in the past, um, we have to be very careful of. And, you know, voices like Brenda, voices like from Ukraine, I've been following since 2014, would have been impossible. I remember trying to follow on the world service what was happening in bosnia in 1995 when the srebrenica happened massacre happened we've got to look at the positive sides of social media if it's not twitter we can directly get those voices uh and um and that and and the problem is that the old monopolies are going the bbc to a certain extent murdoch to a certain extent and they're produced by, they're, you know, they are replaced by new monopolies. But the bit in between, 
the bit which made Facebook happen, the bit that made Twitter happen, was people wanted to talk directly. And I don't think that cat's ever going to go back in that bag. You know, that peer-to-peer idea that I can hear directly from Brenda, that she can talk on this show directly without having to go through a producer saying what you've got to talk about, that is still worth preserving. Brenda, good to hear from you. Thank you. Uh, let's speak to Rant and Rave, an interesting Twitter handle. Hello, Rant and Rave. Just tap your microphone and you can join in. Hello. Hello. I apologise. I do have a for, uh, public-facing job that doesn't allow me to um, uh, show myself in public naturally. Um, a big thank you also to Peter and to Imran and to all those people who've been speaking tonight. It's been a really fascinating conversation. But there is one thing. There's a couple of things, actually, that I wanted to pick up on because we are pretending at the moment that people like Elon Musk and people like Jeff Bezos and all kinds of stuff, that these things are competing in a market. But the truth is that when we look at Google, for example, that is the search engine. I mean, there is Bing, of course, but does any of us use it? In the same way, you know, Facebook is the platform for compound information for, you know, if you want to get the whole of a person's information, that is that platform. Twitter is the platform for quick information, for fast paced information, news, if you like. And when we look at Elon Musk and the topic that we're actually talking about, then you will see that Elon Musk has in the past often and been cited to, you know, manipulate the stock market because of it. So this is where I want to touch on to something that Imran said earlier, because his childlike nature and just the thing I will slightly disagree on about, I don't think the man's a genius at all. He himself has said of himself that he has Asperger's syndrome. So having a razor sharp focus on a goal is just a part of his personality. That to me doesn't make him a genius. It makes him, you know, somebody who's got a razor sharp focus and that. However, sorry, but your your assessment of him was still correct. The fact that this might not be good for a hugely comp- complex structure like Twitter is absolutely correct. So, but all of this gets us one big problem, which is how do you regulate it? How do you regulate these things that are actually monopolies? And realistically, somebody should break them up. And how do you regulate something where a private entrepreneur, one person who, you know, might have the competency or not, can actually buy something and dictate how it runs for the world? I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how anybody would answer. No, no. Well, I, I think that's a that's a that's a that's a very big um, question, uh, rant and right. But I think it's. Uh, it is maybe one for uh, Peter, you know, do, do we simply need some kind of antitrust legislation to, to break up the power yeah, of I, Facebook I actually, and even, even Twitter? The problem with antitrust legislation, it's all focused on price gouging, i.e., you know, if, let's say, a company like Uber gets all the taxes at a low, it dumps and then can raise the prices because there's no competition. Now, the thing about Twitter and Facebook is they appear to be free. And the famous uh, line by Steve Jobs, if a product is free, you are the product. No, they're not free. They take all your data. It's worth about £500 a year they take from you and sell onto advertisers. But it's very difficult to regulate the idea of a monopoly that doesn't charge you anything. You know, the classic monopolies, which happened in the late 19th century, power, water, gas, and transport, which had to be nearly all states 
you know, took them over a while because it was just inefficient to replicate these monopolies. It's very difficult with a free product. And so there's something about our power is the, the, actually the price is us. And so the Germans have a an idea, and Imran might be able to speak to this better than I can, that actually you own your data. The Americans don't have this idea at all. We're in a middle way with GDPR. They should pay us to come on their platform because they are monetizing us. They're a monopsy. They're not monopoly. They're a monopsy buyer. Facebook buys all your friends, all your memories. I don't go on Facebook anymore because last time they told me my memories of 10 years ago. That was a frightening Orwellian moment. Um, and the economic model of free, apparently free to access services has to be dealt with by legislation, but it's tough. Mm. I think Imran uh, just had to leave us, just so you know, Peter. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Imran, from the Centre for Countering Digital Heights. Go on, Ranton Ray. Did you want to pick up? I just want to say one last thing. Uh, Peter, I am half German, and actually I believe that the idea of owning your data and owning your person is just like, you know, an artist owning the right to their image is absolutely the way that we should start pursuing this legislation. I think you've hit the nail on the head on there a little bit. And I know antitrust is very difficult, but that is exactly the conversation that we should have with people like Elon Musk. Thank you so much for answering. Ranton Ray, thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's bring in uh, somebody with the wonderful name, uh, Ted Tremblay. Is that is that your real name, Ted? Uh, it's a nom de plume. <laughs> I guessed it might be Ted. I guessed it might be. Go on, what point do you want to Yeah, make? well, I just wanted to um, talk. I'm an attorney here in the United States, and I think the key distinction, the key issue in this case, is that the First Amendment affords uh, a lot of protection to companies like Twitter, uh, the right to association. Um, if you look at how uh, public corporations, companies can give unlimited uh, political funds to uh, PACs, political action committees in the United States under uh, U.S. Supreme Court precedent. So, like the point was made earlier about antitrust not really kind of fitting in this keyhole problem, I also see the First Amendment issue in the United States that effectively will give uh, broad discretion to uh, Twitter regarding its users. Uh, Ted, your line's not brilliant, so I'm afraid. I, I do apologize. I can't really make out. Uh, what you're saying very well, but uh, I can, I, oh, I can, oddly enough, by, yeah, because yeah, I can't on. hear anybody, but I use the transcription, thank you, uh, Twitter, transcription mechanism, and basically what Ted was saying that, you know, is going back to Citizens United, this idea that corporations are allowed their own association, rights to association, free speech. Now, this is a landmark uh, piece of legislation enacted in 2010, by Ted Bossy or David Bossy, friend of Trump, which unleashed everything. I can tell you, you can see in British politics all the dark money flowing because suddenly corporations had the right to have political opinions and the rights to assembly. And, and it's interestingly saying that um, that's what protects Twitter, that it has the rights to incorporate all of us as a rights to assembly. Now, I notice that when that passed in 2010, I think Obama said this is a huge moment in American politics. It was also, I can tell you, a huge moment in British politics because a lot of that money flowed over here and we've tracked it. But there is an attempt, and and maybe um, our, our American uh, f attorney friend, if you can be a bit clearer, can explain, 
there is an attempt to overturn that because that idea that corporations have the same rights as people is at the heart of the libertarian dream, is the heart of what has gone wrong in British and American politics in the last decade. Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has a major conservative majority uh, sitting now, as you have seen with Gorsuch being confirmed, with Kavanaugh being confirmed, with um, with a recent confirmation. So, uh, Citizens United, you're right, from from a little over a decade ago, that's standing Supreme Court precedent. And given the uh, massive shift to the conservative side of the court in the last 10 years, there's no there's nowhere on the horizon of that change, uh, changing. Okay, Ted, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining in. Um, uh, well, give me another couple of calls. You're right to hang around for a bit, Peter. I won't, take, won't keep you too long. But uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, breaking bad from weight. <laughs> Just a really fascinating debate, really. And uh, so many people want to speak uh, both sides of the Atlantic as well, which is always uh, something to be encouraged. I think uh, Edward is up next. Hello, Edward. Welcome. You're on Byline Radio. Uh, thanks for your attention. I'm getting a little bit nervous. Don't worry. Go on. You're amongst friends now, Edward. Okay. Go on. I want, I want to just bring up two um, new words in this whole context about um, someone having uh, the absolute power about a really critical infrastructure digitally uh, rooted, like Twitter. And the two words I want to bring up are absolutism. Digital absolutism. The whole Western world thrived for the last 200 years for democracy and uh, freedom of speech and whatsoever. But we saw with the birth of digital communication, that digital communication would be the complete opposite of what we dreamed in a real society. Digital society is hate, canceling people, destroying people, showing gore, being absolute over the top. And now we have the situation that our world on real basis, like in Ukraine right now, is collapsing. The whole world is collapsing and the whole um, digital world is also collapsing. And at this point in time, where we all thrive for democracy and the world is going really up the shithole, one guy comes and buys the whole marketplace where every person on the planet has the ability to shout out and hate other people or show his, um, uh, I don't know how to say, everybody can in this marketplace, Twitter, for free, hate people, love people, show what he likes. And now this guy comes and buys it. So digital absolutism. This, as you, as, as someone before me spoke about, he's like a child, yeah. And uh, Louis XIV in France was also a child. He was the Sun King. Perhaps uh, Elon is the new Sun King. And we all thrive for democracy. Now this guy comes and says, okay, I'll buy it all. So you're obviously concerned about this, Edward. You, you think this is a very disturbing trend. No, I, I think it's really interesting. I love it, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, okay. okay. Let's bring okay, in uh, Heidi Kuda. Thanks for the attention. Bye. 
No, no, thank you, Edward. Let's bring in Heidi Kuda, very well-known investigative journalist who's written at Byline Times and bylinetimes.com as well, as well as in uh, other august publications. Hello, Heidi. Welcome along. Oh, thank you for that lovely intro. Yeah, I feel like the best work of my career is what I'm doing at Byline Times and with my podcast, with my RadPod crew. I want to thank everybody so much for all their incredibly brilliant insights. Omar, I cannot wait to listen to what you said back and play it back because I thought it was so important. And of course, uh, Imran, you know, we don't want to hand the reins of free speech over to a dilettante billionaire. I think we routinely have seen in the last six years that we continually underestimate these guys. We just had Paul Mason on our podcast, RadPod, and he said, and I quote, when fascists tell you who they are, believe them. Don't underestimate them. And my colleague Jim Stewartson just wrote an incredible blog post today. This is a land grab. We are in an information war. This is a land grab in an information war. And we have to uh, stop underestimating um, these cats. This is part of a, you know, call it the PayPal mafia, call it what you want. We know the tentacles in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, the tracing tracing it back to uh, you know Russian cash. You know, we've all we've all followed this. So, I just my my humble plea is to not underestimate um, how serious this is, and to uh, please stop uh, writing these people off as clowns. You know, so that that's all. And no, Heidi, feel- stay there if you would, because I think I think Omar has got something to add to that. Hi, Omar, come back, yeah. Yeah, thanks again, uh, Adrian, and thank you, Heidi, as well. We really appreciate everybody's insights also. Two things I wanted to mention. Um, one of them, I think, to add on to what I said earlier, is, is that I had noticed you know, a lot of these publications that make a living covering tech and covering all the digital world, they are all applauding this. Oh, he! let's see. I'm so excited to see what he's going to do with the platform. And, you know, I, I just sit here and shriek. Um, and I noticed that invariably the people who are saying this are also white and the rest of us, uh, many of us uh, who are very concerned of this are black and brown and there are white people of different groups who are also concerned about it. But the thing that I really want to latch on to here, I think it might have been Peter who said a few moments ago um, or someone, it may, it may have been Ted from here in the US who said this as a fellow attorney as well, I, I say, you know, this wasn't just the last 10 years when we had Citizens United, the United States Supreme Court decision in 2010. This whole movement has really started, at least from a U.S. point of view, in the 1970s. You can look back to something called the Powell Memo by Louis B. Powell, who, was, uh, who, who wrote a memo in the early 70s saying that business and corporations now have to be the reestablishment of the central pillar of United States society and be at the heart of where government should be. And a few years after he wrote that memo, which was about 1971, he got put on Nixon's Supreme Court. And we've seen decisions in the 1970s called Buckley versus Vallejo, which talks about speech and money and politics. We've seen a decision in the late 70s or early 80s called the First National Bank of Boston against Bellotti, which deals with the same kinds of matters. So these things are happening not just over a 10-year period. They're happening over a 50, 60-year period. And then that leads us to something called Citizens United, where in 2010, you have the complete kind of the so-called logical conclusion of what 50 years of this kind of creep to the right and to the fascist right has got us to. So I think just by way of context, that's one thing I want to mention. And then finally, very quickly, um, this 
this problem that we've been talking about, people talking about, myself and others, have talked about regulation and how we begin to tackle that. And from a, a legal point of view, I'd say, speech is a form of conduct. It is conduct. And if we talk about how speech affects behavior, and we've talked about, someone mentioned earlier, about how people on it, online are bullied to a point where they end up taking their own lives. And I think that there has to be a way, if we can look at regulation from a form of regulating speech as a matter of conduct and as a form of conduct, I think we can point to where that conduct leads to those harms, people ending their lives, all kinds of things happening, the doxing, the trauma, all the rest of it that's really damaging to us. And I think there is an inroads in which to regulate. And I think that's one way that we can start to think about those things. And I know that the problem, and Adrian, I think you pointed this out too, the problem of um, the money involved. Yes, all these politicians, and they hold a gazillion hearings on Capitol Hill, and they bring Mark Zuckerberg in front of them. And we all know that uh, Mark Zuckerberg has put money into some of these committees' pockets in the Senate. And so that's a deeply problematic thing, and I won't ignore that. But I do think, just to close, is the speech as conduct, I think, is an avenue toward where we can begin to regulate this, certainly in the United States, and I dare say in other countries as well. And thanks, Adrian, again, uh, for the opportunity to speak. No, it's great. Uh, go on, Heidi. Uh, do you want a, another thought on that? I, 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 Omar, just pick it up, I think, on, oh, on the point Peter just, made you know, earlier. You know, if, 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 you, if you dump effluent into the sea or the rivers, if you pollute, then you would be expected to clean up your pollution. In, in social media, at the very least, if you are polluting our collective discourse, well, then surely there must be penalty for that. So there's so many things. Again, Omar, you've just met the the next guest that's coming on RadPod. I haven't even officially asked him, but we have to have Omar on. He's amazing. Um, I just had we, my team just had uh, Nancy McLean from Democracy in Chains on, and she did an incredibly definitive piece of work on the Coke cadre. They hire and pay for three times more uh, uh, firepower than actually uh, the GOP in government. So you have three times more people on the payroll to script right-wing narratives going back decades to uh, create culture wars, to create moral panic, to uh, attack, you know, and other uh, people of color and, uh, you know, um, uh, gay children, you name it. They'll do anything that, that creates that quote-unquote moral panic that will get them votes and fill up their coffers. So that is one thing I wanted to say that so much of this is manufactured going back decades. The other thing is that in 2018, when I worked on a congressional campaign, uh, I was the director of communications for a Muslim American candidate who was quite brilliant. Our goal was to take out Dana Rohrabacher. I was attacked both online and offline. My personal world was um, t turned upside down online and offline, and I experienced harms that I'd never experienced before, and so did my candidate. And um, I had to learn to grow three layers of skin overnight. My RadPod team um, is continually under siege. Uh, two of my uh, guys have been banned off of Twitter uh, for their incredibly brilliant work. And so this is a war that many people are unaware of. It has real-life ramifications. As my partner uh, in the podcast, Jim, always says, if 50 people started yelling uh, slurs to you in a store, you could call the cops and get arrested when it's continually, when you're continually hammered 
uh, and these harms are created online, there's no one to call. Twitter safety does not give a fuck of the toxic levels of misogyny that I deal with on a daily basis. Thank God my daughter taught me to actually uh, only allow people who follow me uh, to comment now, which, you know, at least I'm not spending hours of my day combating hate all the time or having to see it all the time. It still continues behind my back. But, you know, we had Charles Creel on our show in a breaking news special to deliver us the good news that at least the EU, at least UK, at least there are places that are trying to attack online harms, but we are not the wild, wild west anymore. Our children should not have to grow up in this bullying culture. And if you take a day to study the underground online dark web economy and you find out how big it is, one of our main harassers was an executive at a major, uh, you know, publication uh, network in America. She got laid off and guess what? She found herself a new gig. And I'm sure it's quite lucrative to uh, target people with hate on a daily basis. Um, And so again, if you hear the emotion in my voice, that is years and years of trauma and dealing with this. And I, I don't quit because the work is very important. Heidi, great to hear from you. Uh, Heidi, if you want to check out the pod that she's referring to, by the way, it's the Radicalised Pod, Radicalised with a Z, the American spelling, not the British one, but uh, she's a regular writer as well and contributor to the Byline Times. And you can check out more at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our wonderful monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. That helps to support Byline Radio, The Byline Times Podcast, Byline TV, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Just time for a couple more uh, callers, and then uh, we'll let Peter get on to Better Call Saul. Uh, hello, uh, Pop Tentacle. Hello. Oh, sorry, I had the phone down. I'm doing a bunch of server maintenance. No, um, no worries. Got to do the important stuff. Go on. <laughs> well, actually, the server maintenance is for... Uh, a new social media platform uh, that a group of us, uh, when we started to smell that Elon was headed in that direction, we decided that wasn't a good idea. So we're creating our own. Um, And this wasn't meant to be an advertisement, just uh, there are alternatives going to be cropping up out there that... uh, are uh, not uh, or more like Twitter, uh, you know, with some moderation. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to let guys know that people know it's been fascinating. Listen to you folks, by the way. I just want to let people know that there are uh, there are going to be alternatives to Twitter out there. And anyway. how will you balance that then, that line between what, what Elon Musk regards as free speech and what other others others of us might think of as hate speech because that is a difficult thing to navigate if you're using artificial intelligence and algorithms to try and spot problematic areas. If you've got millions or billions of tweets or whatever they're called on your platform to to trawl through every every day. Well, this is this is exactly one of the things that uh, we're still arguing about, so to speak. It's really not an argument. It's it's a serious discussion about uh, how you know how do you distinguish hate speech 
Uh, I'm Lakota, for instance, so I'm I'm a little sensitive to you know if you called me a Sioux Indian, um, uh, so it's difficult. It's on our, on the new this new platform we're working on that still is a uh, still in the works, so to speak. But I tend to be a uh, I tend to be a uh, a fact based kind of guy. Uh, if you can't bring the receipts, then you know, it sounds like editorial to me. So I would be pushing towards, and this is just me, I would be pushing towards uh, if somebody makes a post and it can't be uh, vetted, then, uh, you know, it, it's probably an opinion or editorial. And yes, people are allowed for the editorial p- uh, opinions and political opinions and on and on. But I tend to be more focused on, can I prove that it's true or not? I mean, you know, I'm a server guy, you know, it's a one or a zero, man. You know, (laughs) I don't deal in maybes. (laughs) All right. Brilliant. Well, listen, good luck with it. Thank you so much for joining us. And Peter, I think I better let you get off to a better call. Saul. you've done a good stint here. Uh, Quote of the night. No, Adrian, just just, I I have to say a couple of things just in response to those brilliant contributions from all your uh, from Heidi and from Omar and your last talker. I mean, the thing is, it is war. Um what we're witnessing now is a warfare of information which has real consequences. You only have to see the disinformation poured into the minds of Russians to see that that has real life information wars and in kinetic wars in real life damage. And and unfortunately, as people were in the Blitz, maybe, or in World War II, we're all on the front line of this if we go on social media. And it is war by other means. And, you know, it, that's just what it is. Um, and the good, awful thing about Ukraine, when Heidi talks about dark money, we talk about this world which was supposed to be peer-to-peer, turns out to be the Wasseley Louis Cator's a new hierarchy is that we see this quite clearly that one man is taking over the free speech or the control of free speech of 300 million people. That is what new technology does. It allows for a very lateral flow and then a sudden hierarchy. And the only good news is, as we're seeing with the Russian army and with Putin's ideology, these insular self-reflecting systems of information can collapse very quickly. Mm, no, very, very important insights, Peter. I think my quote of the night came from Heidi. We don't want to hand the reins of free speech to a dilettante millionaire. <laughs> That's just a great quote. So uh, that'll be appearing on Twitter uh, over the next 24, 36 hours as we promote the podcast. I really appreciate your time, Peter. I know it's precious and valuable, but I, I hope you think, I'm sure you do, that these conversations are precious and valuable as well. And I'm always impressed, amazed by the the quality of the callers that we get, the, the intelligence and interaction is, is just amazing so thank you to everybody and thank you to you peter and um, just to remind people the uh, byline festival is on the uh, forthcoming bank holiday weekend it's a portobello road at ackland village such a fantastic lineup and uh, you're going to be there of course peter people like uh, rio ferdinand as well joanna scanlon i might even uh, put in a little appearance as well so uh, you better you better 
<laughs> just head to uh, bylinefestival.com to find out more and please if you think it's worth it if you want to support what we do on byline radio and the podcast head over to bylinetimes.com and take out your subscription to the byline times thank you very much indeed for listening everybody and especially to those who took part we'll see you all very soon stay tuned to at byline radio for our next twitter spaces we'll see you again soon thank you now good night